Uh, we'll open up in your Bibles to Mark chapter 6. If you're new to Grace Rancho, uh, our model is to Sunday by Sunday, week in, week out, preach through the text of Scripture. And we trust that God has a word for us every time that we gather, open up the book, and let it speak. He addresses us personally. And so that's what we're going to do. We're in Mark chapter 6. And up to this point, we've been working through Mark, uh, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, going through it, uh, story by story. And this is what we've been seeing. Jesus is amazing. Uh, he has been doing amazing things. He's healed the sick. He's been casting out demons. In fact, a few weeks ago, we looked at the guy who was dominated by thousands of demons who was set free and delivered. And Jesus demonstrated his authority even over them. Prior to that, we saw Jesus uh, going on the boat with his disciples and how that raging storm came up upon them unexpectedly. And Jesus demonstrated his authority even over nature itself by speaking to the waves and speaking to the wind, and it calmed down to his command. Just prior, we looked at how Jesus healed a sick woman who had been diseased for 12 years and had no other hope and had run out of money and was in misery. Jesus healed her, and, and then he also went ahead and healed. And no, more than that, raised from the dead Jairus' daughter. In other words, Jesus has been doing fascinating, powerful, compelling things all throughout his ministry and you've seen, we've seen in certain places where the text kind of slows down and helps us understand just how popular Jesus is. That the crowds are all gathering. They're all wanting to see what this guy's doing. They're amazed at his teaching. They're amazed and stunned at his miracles. They want to get up close. In fact, there's sometimes the word is used, the crowd was thronging around him. There's so many people, they threaten to trample him at certain moments. You would expect that these people all believe in him and they all want to be near him and they all want to follow him. And sometimes you see instances of faith in the previous section. That's what we saw. But you're actually going to be surprised that as we go through the text, there's not that many people who actually get it. There's actually a lot of people who get caught up in the hype, but they really don't really don't get it. They really don't get what's going on with Jesus. Uh, they like a lot of the things that he does. They are obviously there to see some of the miracles. They hope maybe they can get in on some of that uh, for themselves. Uh, the teaching itself is compelling and all these things, but at the end of the day, there's a surprising few that actually follow him. This is going to happen in our text this morning. Jesus is going to go to a people, a group of people that you might expect to be the first to follow him. You might expect these people to kind of get it and get behind him uh, and be supportive of Jesus and what he's doing. We're actually going to find that the opposite happens. Now Jesus comes home. He comes to Nazareth, the place where he grew up, and he comes to the family that the families that saw him. This would be relatives. This would be close friends. And you're going to be surprised at how they react to him. Let's read the text. I'm going to go ahead and read 1 to 6. You can follow along in your copy of God's Word. It will be more helpful for you if you're trying to follow along to the message this morning, for you to have a Bible open to follow along in your own copy of the Scripture so you can see what we're pointing out. In chapter 6, I'll read, starting in verse 1, he, a kind of 
kind of give a little comments as we go, and then we're going to draw out some lessons from this. Uh, uh, Jesus wants us to learn from this. He went away from there. That would have been Capernaum. That would have been the place where he healed Jairus' daughter. He healed the woman. Uh, the pe people were kind of all around him. He was well known. He leaves that area, and from there he came to his hometown. He goes to Nazareth, and his disciples followed him. Twelve are still with him. There probably are also some remnants of the crowd that are also coming back with him. And it's on a Sabbath, verse 2. And on the Sabbath, this was his custom. If you remember all along, you've been seeing this, that Jesus, on the Sabbath, will go into a synagogue and he'll stand up and he'll begin to teach. This isn't the first time he's done it. It's kind of his thing. And so he comes here on the Sabbath into the synagogue there. It wouldn't have been a massive crowd there because Nazareth was a small village. And so there's a probably a modest group of people listening to him, but it says there that he began to teach in the synagogue. And many who heard him were astonished. That word astonished, it's uh, the idea of uh, something that strikes you, something that it blows your mind a little bit, something that's staggering, something that's breathtaking, that the people are hearing Jesus preach in the synagogue, and they're just having their eyes open, their mind is being blown. They're going, whoa, this is amazing. Look at what they say. Where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Now, if that's all they said, you would say, wow, these, they, they like him, right? They, they love the teaching. They're eating it up. But there's a twist that takes place here. It almost catches you off guard. It's going this way, and then it's like, turns the other way. Verse 3. Is not this the carpenter? The son of Mary, and brother of James, and Joseph, and Judas, and Simon? Are not his sisters here with us? It's like, I know Jesus. That's, that's a carpenter kid, right? I know his family. I know Mary and the kids. And they took offense at him. They took offense at him. They were offended by him and what he was doing there in the synagogue. And Jesus said to them, verse 4, A prophet's not without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. And he could do no mighty work there, except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. He marveled at their unbelief. That word marveled is used in the previous chapter, in chapter 5, verse 20, when it's describing the amazing transformation of the man who is inhabited by demons set free. And he goes back to the villages. He displays himself as sane in his right mind. He, he's been delivered. He's been healed. He's been saved. And it says that everyone marveled. It was so staggering. It was amazing at what Jesus had done to this man. And now here, that same word is being used to describe Jesus' response to the unbelief of his hometown. He comes home, and the people who knew him, the people who saw him grow up, they listen to him preach in the synagogue, and now they reject him. And Jesus marvels at their unbelief. This text is about unbelief. That's the point of this text. It is to show that there is a power at play. 
in people's hearts and minds when they hear the gospel is the power of unbelief that prevents people from receiving the best news in the universe. I mean, if you were to give someone the best news in the universe and you would hand it to them, you'd think, well, why would anyone reject this? I mean, don't you want this to be true? It is extraordinary news, astounding news. And you hand people the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ and they reject it. Why? Why do people reject such fantastic news? Well, the answer is unbelief. There's an unbelief. There's there's a power of unbelief at play. And here's what we're going to do. We've kind of just already walked through the text. There's really nothing uh, really difficult to unpack here. It's pretty straightforward. He goes home. He preaches in the synagogue. His own people reject him. And so he doesn't do any mighty works there. Uh, He's not going to uh, he's going to now move on to keep preaching in other places where there's more people being receptive. And then he marvels at their unbelief. And so that's kind of the narrative there. And we're going to now understand, this is what we're going to try to do, is we're going to try to understand you know, what it means to be in unbelief and look at some of the power of unbelief. But to do that, we're going to start by understanding the nature of true faith. Okay? The nature of true belief. Uh, the, the message this morning is going to really have three headings. We're going to look at true saving belief. We're going to then look at repentance. And then last, we're going to see what does it mean that Jesus stopped doing these mighty works here? Why did he move on? What is Jesus' response to their own unbelief? So We're going to start here by looking at true saving belief. Okay, What does it mean to actually believe in such a way that, that it means you're saved. Because if you actually read the Bible, you start realizing there's, there's often this kind of belief that is not a saving belief. If you've ever read through the Gospel of John, you've encountered this kind of belief. It's the people who love Jesus when he's handing out the fish and the loaves. It's the kind of people who love him when they think he's going to come and overthrow Rome. But as soon as he starts talking about difficult things, about the cost of following him, they reject him. In other words, they believe him up to a point, but they're not willing to rely upon him and to embrace a life of obedience following him. If you've read through the book of James, you've encountered this idea. That there is a kind of faith that the apostle James says is dead faith. It is a faith that does not save. It's a faith that someone confesses with their mouth, but in their heart there's never been a giving up of oneself to Christ. And so there's, quote-unquote, faith, there's, quote-unquote, belief that don't really grab hold of Christ and experience salvation. As James would put it, there's a kind of faith that even demons have. There's a kind of belief that even the demons have, and of course, they are not saved. The Protestant reformers there in the 1500s, many of them, we're trying to help people understand the nature of true saving faith. And so one of their uh, contributions that they offered the church and the way they articulated the nature of saving faith was to divide a faith up into three essential ingredients. Remove any of these and you don't have saving faith anymore. Uh, to, to really have genuine saving faith according to Scripture, you have to have all of these. Let me delineate these. You might want to write these down and talk about these later. This is important. Uh, they use Latin, <laughs> but I'm going to not use Latin. 
But if you want to know the Latin words, it's notitia, ascensus, and fiducia. But here's what, he, what, here's what they meant. They were talking about the three aspects or the three ingredients of saving faith. Number one is content, the notitia. In other words, to have saving faith, you have to believe in a certain content. There are truths you must confess. There is faith, saving faith is in something. We're not Disney. It's not belief just to believe. We just have faith in what? In faith. It's not like that. True Christianity sets faith in something, in content, in truth, in promises. So in order to have saving faith, there must be content about what it is that we are putting our faith in, or maybe who it is that we are putting our faith in. First, content. Secondly, agreement. So it's not just to have the content. You must actually agree or assent to the content. Uh, this is the ascensus measure of faith, the aspect of faith. It is when you have the content and you agree with the content. It's not just that you've heard that Jesus is human and divine. You agree that it's true. You agree that he lived a perfect life. You agree that he died on the cross, rose from the dead. You believe in the content. So that's level one is you got the content. Level two is now you actually agree with it. You affirm it. You say, yes, this is true. Now let me tell you this. There are a vast majority of people who attend church every Sunday and call themselves Christians. They got the content and they agree with it in their minds and they're going to miss this last part I'm going to mention to you. And they are deceived because they think that they have saving faith. Here's the last part. Reliance. The Reformers made it clear that, they, that this is part of true saving faith. It's not that just you got the facts right. It's not that you, should, you just agree with the facts. It's that now you are relying upon these truths. You are turning from everything else to entrust yourself to the truths that you have discovered in Christ. This is described in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 where he describes how the gospel came to this church in power. How did it come in power? How did Paul know it came in power? What does it say they did? They turned from idols to serve the living God. In other words, it wasn't something they merely checked off in their minds saying, they, yes, I agree. It was something that so radically transformed their lives that they relied upon it. Let me give you another uh, example. Ever been bungee jumping? It's one thing. Imagine you're going to bungee jumping and you're planning on doing this thing. You're crazy like that. And you're going to go get ready for the jump. And they give you a little informational booklet and it gives you all the details you need to know. You know how much that bungee can hold, how much weight, how that harness works. And you read all through and you go, okay, I got all the content here. That's your content. That's not enough to, to save you. And let's imagine you, you climb up to the top where you're going to jump and in your mind you say, I agree with the content. The content says this, this harness will hold me. The content says the bungee won't break when I jump off. The content says, I will be safe, I will survive, I believe in the content. Now, how do you know if they really believe in the content? What are they going to do? They're going to jump. And what do you say about the person who in their mind checks off the list says, I agree, I agree, I agree, but they're refusing to jump? Well, you might actually question whether they believe it or not. 
There's actually kind of a funny story of a, a great high wire, high wire artist whose name was Charles Blondin. And years ago, he stretched his tightrope across Niagara Falls. And he walked across it, and everyone was amazed. Everyone was stunned. But he wanted to take the stunt a little bit further. And so he said, I'm going to get a wheelbarrow, and I'm going to walk across it holding this wheelbarrow. And he did that, and everyone was amazed, and all the attention of the world was set on this guy, and newspapers were coming out to interview him. And one newspaper uh, that caught wind that he was going to do this next stunt, and this next stunt was going to be better than all the other stunts. What was he going to do? Well, he was going to take that wheelbarrow, and he was going to push it across with something in it, a person. And so the newspaper reporter comes up to Blonde and he says, wow, this is amazing. This is an amazing stunt. And he's talking to him about it and Blonde goes, well, let me ask you a question. Do you think I can do it? And the reporter goes, well, of course you can do it. You're the greatest stuntman in the world. I think you'll be able to do it. And Blonde replies, well, get in the wheelbarrow. Suddenly, he's questioning whether he can do it or not. You see, there's content. I know what he's doing. There's agreement. I think he can do it. But there's the actual practice of that belief when you now rely upon those things you know to be true. When you take a step of faith and believe in those things. How about this? Let's put it into real life now. Imagine a woman. She hears that Jesus is the divine Son of God. That He lived a perfect life. He died on the cross for sinners. He rose from the dead. He will forgive her sins. He will transform her life. That Jesus will grant her eternal life if she trusts in Him. She's got all the content. She thinks about it. She's mulling it over and she goes, I, I think this is true. I think this is true. She agrees. And then she says, I'm going to entrust my entire life to this Jesus. And whatever His Word says is a word to me. He's my Lord, and I'm now going to entrust myself to Him. I'm going to walk in His ways. I'm going to learn from Him. I'm going to express my obedience in getting baptized. I'm going to express my obedience now by learning everything He calls me to do. I'm going to do my best now to walk in obedience to Him. That's reliance. That's reliance. And so there's often people who get the content and they agree with it and they don't really live lives that express true reliance upon the truth. Let's go back to our text. Let's ask ourselves this. What's happening with these people when they hear Jesus' message? Let's ask, let's, let's use those three things as kind of a framework to understand what's happening in our text. Did these people get the content? Well, absolutely. Look at it. Look at verse 2. On the Sabbath, he went, went in, he began to teach in the synagogue. Jesus, obviously, is going to give them the best possible teaching anyone could ever receive. So they're going in, and they, they hear him, and it says, they are astonished, saying, where did this man get these things? These things refers back to the teachings that he was giving them. He, they're amazed at the teachings. Uh, they're amazed at it. That they're receiving the right content, of course. Well, let's ask the second question. Do they agree? Do they agree with the content? Well, I think the answer is pretty clear that they do. There's nothing in the text that indicates that they're disagreeing with the actual content of Jesus' message. In fact, the opposite seems to be true. They're amazed at what he's teaching. And then look at the second half of verse 2. They're amazed at the wisdom given to him. What is this wisdom 
given to him. They're struck by the wisdom with which Jesus teaches. And at the end of verse 2, how are such mighty works done by his hands? They, they cannot, it's an unimpeachable message. They're, they're hearing this content, they're stunned by its wisdom, they're amazed at the mighty works that accompany his teaching. They got the content, and in their minds they cannot, there's no faults, there's no cracks in what Jesus is giving them. They're just amazed. There's nothing that indicates that they have some sort of theological problem with the message that Jesus is bringing them. In fact, when you read their dispute, their complaint, it has nothing to do with what Jesus said. It has everything to do with who he was. They got the content. They even agreed. But they did not rely upon him. Look at verse 3. What do they do? Is this not the carpenter? Jesus would have been raised by Joseph, who was a carpenter. So Jesus would have learned the trade of Joseph. Son of Mary, the fact that they refer to him as Mary's son and not Joseph's son, could indicate that they believe he was an illegitimate child. The brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon. It's like, we know your family. Like, why, do you, why are you so special, Jesus? You come up here and you start preaching this. You see what's happening here. They're, they're not questioning his teaching. They're not questioning his character. They're not questioning the mighty works. What are they questioning? His identity. Jesus, you don't have the authority to tell us how to live. It's not that they don't agree with what he says. It's just that I don't want you to tell me to repent and follow you. Because I think you're just a common man. And you've got to keep in mind, if Jesus comes back to Nazareth, he would have been, uh, he, he grew up in Nazareth, right? 30 years he grew up in Nazareth. Any of you ever, some of you might have grown up in a small town and you kind of get to know everyone. Well, Nazareth was that. I mean, Nazareth isn't this big metropolis where everyone's hustling and bustling. There's lots of people. You don't really know who's who. This is a small town kind of on the outskirts of Israel. And Jesus, to be raised in Nazareth, most people would have knew him. Most people would have knew his family. In fact, that's what's going on here. They, they recognize who he is and his family. And for 30 years, we don't have much information about his life there. He, we know that he didn't start his public ministry of miracles and preaching until age 30. So Jesus probably would have been somewhat ordinary when he was raised in Nazareth. Obviously perfect, obviously sinless, didn't, didn't create any problems in the sense of him being a rabble-rouser or anything like that. He would have been an obedient carpenter's son for 30 years. And now he disappears and he comes back after some time. He's got now this group of guys following him around everywhere he goes, 12 of them. Probably some other crowd type figures just kind of want to be in the hype. And he gets in here. He's, he just marches right into the synagogue. He gets up front and he starts preaching this message from God about the repentance that they need to have in their lives and they are not having it. They're offended by him. And that's why Jesus says, a prophet's not without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives and his own household. In other words, everyone loves a prophet except the people who watched him grow up. They got all the honor everywhere else with the place they grow up. They don't give them any honor. <laughs> when I was, uh, I was raised in, in Grace Church of Simi Valley. That was a church that I grew up in from childhood. I was in diapers in that nursery over there. And the people that uh, were part of that church for many, many years were still part of that church when I became the, the student ministries pastor in 2012. 
In fact, one of those uh, women who would, you know, Sunday school teacher for me growing up and, and, and part of my life from childhood was the secretary, sweet lady Donna. Many of you out in Simi Valley, you know Donna Nahara. Sweet lady, loves the church, and she still, still, when I would go over to her and ask for some copies to be made or we would talk about some event that's coming up, she would look at me like I was her own little child and smile at me. Sometimes she'd rub my hair and give me a big hug. Sometimes, I hate to admit it, she'd call me Baby Eric. It's, it's like I can't grow out of this thing. I'm towering over you, Donna. But still, I just can't grow out of it. I wonder if something like that's happening to Jesus. Everyone knows you, Jesus. We watched you grow up. I mean, you're, you're still this carpenter's son. You're, you're, the, you're part of that family. You're ordinary. And you're here, you're here now. You're telling us all these things. Stop it. Come on. We know your family. Stop the shenanigans. And they're offended by it. I want to stop there for a second. Look at that word. Look at, look at that part. They took, end of verse 3. They took offense at him. They took offense at him. Why did they take offense at him? This is where we have to get into, well, what was it that Jesus was saying? Let's be more specific. What was it that Jesus taught that was offensive? If you go to Mark chapter 1, and you look at verse 15, it gives you a summary statement of all of Jesus' teachings. This was his message. Okay? Everywhere he went, everywhere he preached, the foundation of all his sermons were found, are found in that text. What does it say? You go back a couple pages, it says this. Jesus began proclaiming the gospel of God, verse 15, and saying, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe in the gospel. That was the message. So when Jesus comes home to Nazareth, what is he preaching? Repent and believe in the gospel. We actually have another exegetical clue that this is the case. Look ahead in chapter 6, verse 12, when he sends out the apostles, what is their message? Verse 12, so they went out and proclaimed that people should repent. That was Jesus' message. That's the apostles' message. Whenever Jesus gets a chance to preach, what's he preaching? He's preaching repentance. He's preaching repentance. In other words, this is what this means. The people he's preaching to are willing to receive the content. They are even willing to agree with it. But the moment he starts calling people to repentance... They get offended. Who are you to call me to change my life? Who are you to call me to turn around? Who are you to speak into my life and say that things need to change? Who are you to tell me to do that? See, the issue is always repentance. To this day, friends, there are people who are in churches everywhere. They agree with the content. They affirm the right doctrines. And they yet will not repent. Because they are willing to do the first phase of faith. They're willing to do the second faith. But there's no real reliance upon Christ. How would you know if there would be reliance on Christ? 
there would be a reliance is expressed in genuine repentance. Turning, oh, you say, okay, well, what's repentance? We've got to pause. Here's our second point. If we're going to do points in the sermon, the second point is let's define repentance. We've got to talk about that. Well, what does it mean? I've got six quick bullets here. What is repentance? Here's what it is. First, it's a change of mind. Literally, that's what the word means. Metanoia. It's a turning. It's a change of mind that results in a turning. You change your mind about God. You change your mind about sin. You change your mind about the direction of your life. You change your mind about what you're living for. Repentance is a change of mind. Secondly, repentance involves sorrow for sin. You've changed your mind about God. You see Him as glorious and wonderful. And therefore, you see your sin as offensive and destructive. It's that which makes you miserable and offends God. And the result of that is sorrow. I've been doing this. I've allowed this to creep into my life. It hurts. There's a sense of guilt. When Ezra repented in the Old Testament, he used words like this to describe his feelings. I am ashamed and humiliated. In Luke 18, when Jesus is describing the picture of true repentance, he describes a man who won't even look up to heaven. He puts his face down. He's beating his chest and he's begging God for mercy. That's a picture of repentance. It's a change of mind, but it involves sorrow for sin. Paul calls it in 2 Corinthians 7, godly grief. Third, repentance involves confession of sin. Repentance involves a confession of sin. The word confession in the New Testament Greek is homologeo. It literally means to say the same thing as. In other words, true confession is when I say about my sin the same thing God says about it. In other words, I don't sugarcoat it. I don't blame shift. I don't minimize it. I don't act like it's no big deal. I call it like it is. I say that it is a sinful offense to a holy God. David did this in Psalm 51, a psalm of repentance, when he cried out against you and against you only have I sinned and done this evil in your sight. So there's a change of mind, there's sorrow for sin, there's confession of sin. Fourth, it then involves turning away from sin. Repentance is turning away from sin. It doesn't mean that you become sinless. Repentance never means that you're now perfect. But it does mean that you've drawn a line in the sand and you've said, I'm taking signs, sides with God. I'm going to be taking sides with my Savior. And all my sin is now an enemy. I am against it. I'm fighting it. I am no longer making peace with sin. Fifth, repentance includes a renunciation of works. Say, what do you mean by that? This might be surprising. You say, I thought repentance is two good works. Well, here's what is meant by repentance is a renunciation of works. It means this, that when you are turning from uh, from sin, you're also renouncing that you do any good to earn the favor of God. You're renouncing that your goods, your, your good deeds, could ever be the grounds of your salvation. You're renouncing that you deserve anything from God. You're admitting that the only thing you've ever deserved from God is wrath. You understand that the only thing that God, if he's going to be, if God's just going to purely act out of his justice, he's going to give you what you deserve, you're going to be condemned. 
Because all your good deeds amount to nothing before him. And so repentance involves a repudiation of all your good works, turning from them because they're not your hope anymore. It's like the old hymn, Rock of Ages says, Not the labor of my hands can fulfill thy law's demands. Could my zeal no respite know? Could my tears forever flow? All for sin could not atone. Thou must save and thou alone. It is to say, to renounce your works is to say, I could have the greatest zeal. I could have more energy put in the pursuit of holiness than anyone in the whole world. And I could even weep. And I could even cry and shed tears of shame over it. But at the end of the day, no good works will ever redeem me. It is Christ and Christ alone. Here's the last part of repentance. It then turns to God in obedient submission. It's not just a turning from, it's a turning to. You forsake sin because you want to draw near to God. Repentance. Jesus came walked into the synagogue of his hometown, stood up and began preaching a message of repentance that you need to turn, you need to recognize your sin before a holy God, you need to give up all else, all other hopes, all other things you're holding on for your foundation, and you need to turn to Christ, you need to reorient your life around Him, you need to turn from your sin, you need to now grasp Him and hold Him and obey Him and walk with Him and be submissive to Him. That's what you got to do. And listen, they were offended by that. Not necessarily in the message itself, again, because God always calls people to repentance all through the Old Testament. He'd always done that. But they said, Jesus, not from you. You don't have the right to tell us. We know who you are. You're, a, you're an ordinary person. But they stumbled over repentance. It's always the case, church. People love hearing about a God who is a God of love and mercy, and grace, and praise God that that is who He is. But when the message comes that this God requires all of you, that to have true faith in Him is to embrace all of Him, it is to change what your life orbits around, people go, uh, no, I, I will agree with the stuff, but I, I don't know if I can go there. That happens. And let me say this. A gospel with no repentance is no gospel. And a Christian who has not repented is no Christian. Because you've embraced a gospel, it's a false gospel. This is not to add works to salvation. It is to say that works flow out of any true salvation. Listen to Jesus. I mean, Jesus himself teaches this. Luke 13, 3. He says this, No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. There's no salvation unless there's repentance. Luke 14, 26, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. That doesn't mean you've got to loathe your family. What Jesus is saying there is in comparison the affection and devotion you have for Jesus in comparison makes your family look like you don't like them very much, but you actually love them. But your devotion to Christ is so singular, so focused. You're so devoted there. 
that someone might be able to look at you and go, don't they care about their family? And if they were to examine that question, of course they'd see that you do, but in comparison, it looks like Jesus is your greater affection and your greater treasure. Luke 14, listen to this. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. What are we going to do with this, church? These are Jesus' words. What are we going to do with it? We're going to teach them. We're going to preach them. We're going to make sure people know that this is true. That you cannot be a disciple of Jesus Christ until you renounce everything else that you have and you grab Him and Him alone for your soul salvation, your hope, your anchor, your life. Luke 15, 7. Just so, I tell you, there will be more person or more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over the 99 persons who need no repentance. This is what Jesus says. He doesn't call people to ask Him into His heart. He doesn't call people to just pray a prayer or walk an aisle, raise a hand or sign a card. He says, repent. Reorient your life around Me. Your whole heart around Me. Your whole purpose for existence around Me. And when people hear that, even often religious people, as in the case of Mark 6, some people are offended. But it is the message of the Gospel. It is the message of grace. You know who the only people who receive this message are? It's the people who have been so utterly humbled by their own sin and neediness that they want someone else to run their lives. That's why repentance is such a blessing. This is why Christians come to Jesus. We say, I can't be Lord over my life. Why would I want to do that? Why would I want to run my own life? I'm, I'm, in, I'm so needy. I'm not wise. I need a Savior. I need a Lord. And they come to Christ and they look to Him to lead. Not just to be a ticket into heaven, but to be a Lord who speaks to us through His Word and then we give our lives to Him and we walk with Him in obedience. I remember uh, there's a few years ago talking to a young man he had grown up in a Christian home. He'd grown up in a Christian church, just about as Christian in his environment as you can imagine. And we're talking about these things, and I'm, I'm walking through these texts, and I'm showing him that Christ calls us to repent. It's, it's clear. It's all throughout the New Testament. And I go, what do you think about all this? He kind of looks at all of it, and he, he pauses. He looks up at me and he goes, I've never heard this before breaks my heart. I wonder how many people are in churches across the world and Jesus is a guru who's going to fix your life, make your, get your best life now. Jesus is going to make you rich. Jesus is going to answer your prayers. Jesus loves you. Nothing about repentance. Nothing about genuine faith and what that actually means. Nothing about the need to turn and change. There are people, you know them. They got the doctrines. They agree with it mentally. But look at their life. They're not following Christ. Have you heard this before? Have you repented? Going back to those six kind of marks, have you, have you grieved over your sin? Do you grieve over the way sin has offended a holy God? Have you confessed that to God, agreeing with Him that it is evil? Have you then forsaken it, turned from it, taken sides against it? 
Have you renounced every other effort of self-salvation, recognizing that your own good works accomplish nothing? Have you given yourself then to God in humble, obedient submission? Not perfect. It wasn't Jesus' message that turned them off. It wasn't His character. They couldn't dispute the mighty works that He was doing. They didn't want to listen to His message of repentance. And there are millions of people happy to agree with Jesus, affirm His teachings, but they will not repent. What about you? I want us to notice Jesus' response. Verse 5. It says He would do no mighty work there, except that He laid His hand on a few sick people and healed them. And He marveled at their unbelief. Why could He do no mighty work? Uh, some people take this to mean that because there's no faith, Jesus is somehow unable to do any mighty works. Like He's bound by other people's faith. That's not what this means. Jesus clearly in other places heals people who don't have any faith at all. Think of the ten lepers. Nine of them don't even come back to thank them. Only one does. It's not referring to that. This actually is Jesus engaging in an act of judgment against these people who had heard the message, seen the works, and still retained a hard heart against Him. He says, I'm no longer going to continue giving you miracles that confirm what I'm teaching you. I'm going to give you over to your own ways. This is what God does to people who persist in their unbelief. At some point, you get to the point where the judgment is not the ground opening up underneath you and devouring you. The judgment is, well, you're not going to be able to hear the gospel anymore. Your heart's just going to be so hardened. I'm not going to provide for you proof again and again of the reality so long as you continue hardening your heart. Jesus leaves them and doesn't do the miracles and it's an act of judgment upon them. And we have to then pause and ask ourselves, well, what does this mean for us today? Here's what it means. If you are one of those people who hears the message again and again and again and you agree with it, but then you are not responding in repentance, there will come a day that your heart will be so hard you will not even be able to hear it anymore and Jesus will give you over to the sins you've preferred over Him. It's a terrifying reality this text gives us. That He walks away from them and no longer does any mighty works among them. And He marvels at their hard-hearted unbelief. So what's the application? It is this, repent today. That if you have ears to hear, turn now. If you have eyes to see, embrace Him immediately. Jesus has come, lived the perfect life you could never live, volunteered Himself to go to the cross to die for the sins of His people, conquered death, rose from the dead, is alive right now, and is extending free grace and salvation to everyone who repents and embraces Him as Lord. Will you come? I urge you to come. If you haven't yet come, come. And if you've already known Him, humble yourself before our mighty King and recognize that He is worthy of your devotion. Do not be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Jesus' response is after hard-hearted responses to His own Gospel preaching, 
is to leave them to themselves. Jesus goes to the cross, dies, rises again. He's in heaven now. He speaks to us this morning. Will you respond with true faith? You've got the content. Maybe you have that mental agreement. But is there a reliance upon this truth? Or will Jesus marvel at you in your hard-hearted unbelief? Let's pray. Lord, you and you alone can soften the hard heart, open the blind eyes, cause ears to hear. Lord, I pray that if any here are like these people that agree with the content, but are unwilling to receive the message of repentance. I pray that you would shatter their resistance, overcome them with your grace and love, open their eyes, compel them to come in and receive the mercy, the grace, and the love that you have for your children that they would fully submit themselves to You and Your Word and walk in obedience. And if there are any who have questions, they're just struggling with certain questions they, they can't figure out, I pray that they'd have the courage this morning to ask someone for help. That they would stick around and find someone in the church that could help them answer their question. And Lord, that You would lead them to salvation. We're thankful for the way you work, have been working, and will continue to work for your own glory and for the good of your church. In Jesus' name, amen.